The sermon passage is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, page 968 in the Pew Bibles, the Blue Bibles, 968, chapter 10. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some, of, some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond the limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. It's a fairly well-known saying, uh, attributed of all people to Al Capone, <laughs> the notorious American gangster from the early 20th century. Mr. Capone perhaps could have benefited from some self-knowledge. I don't think when people thought of him, the first thing they thought about was marveling at his kindness and speculating about his weakness, but he does touch on a real issue there. It's easy to assume that kindness and gentleness are on the same side of the street as personal weakness. They're not exactly the same thing, but they do seem like adjacent qualities. They're compatible characteristics. They often come together in the same package, kindness and weakness. And probably we also think the opposite is true. 
we assume that people who are brash and harsh, uh, aggressive, angry, that they must be powerful and influential people. But in our passage for this morning from the book of 2 Corinthians, we see the Apostle Paul responding to some of his critics in the church there. And he tells them, in essence, what, what you've taken as evidence of my weakness is really my kindness. It really is my Christ-likeness toward you. And so as we consider this passage this morning, we're going to look and see three subjects that Paul wants to discuss with the church. Some of these themes are going to be familiar to you if you've been here for this whole series in 2 Corinthians. But first, let's look and see how Paul builds the church. Second, let's look at the way that he boasts. And then finally, we'll look at the way that he battles. So the way Paul builds, the way Paul boasts, and the way Paul battles. And I think as we go along the way, we'll see that the apostle was anything but weak. So let's start by looking at the way that Paul builds. Here we really need to have a sense of the background of the letter to 2 Corinthians. It is an occasional letter. That is to say, the Apostle Paul is not writing this as a, a pure theology textbook, a sort of collection of timeless truths, disembodied, floating around in the ether. But he is writing this letter to a very specific group of people with whom he had a very specific and difficult relationship at a very specific moment in time. There's a, a, a context that Paul's writing into. And so uh, one scholar compared it to when we read 2 Corinthians, it's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation, right? We're, we're getting this one side of it, and we can kind of piece together what the person on the other side must have been saying from the reactions that we're hearing, right? We can learn a lot from what we hear, but we have to understand it in the context of the person it was spoken to. So you'll be helped to know just a little bit about the city of Corinth. This is a wealthy, cosmopolitan city. It was full of idols and, and temples for worship. It was a city that particularly prided itself on its erudition, its, its rhetorical sophistication. It, it was a, a cosmopolitan place. And in ancient Greece, there was a, a, a movement of maybe you just call them paid teachers, teachers of philosophy, teachers of, of rhetoric. Uh, they called themselves the sophists. And these men were, were famous for being able to sort of argue for any position, right? And they would go from town to town, from city to city. They would receive money. They would open schools. They would attract uh, students. And they would teach them these sort of rhetorical devices. They would teach them philosophy. They would teach them uh, different ways to become sort of masters of words. Uh, these sophists sort of delighted in being able to tie people in knots rhetorically, right? They were competitive, they were ambitious, and they were very clearly and openly in it for the money. And it seems that these folks were right at home in the city of Corinth. There was a strong sort of presence of these sophists uh, in the city. It was, they, they fit the zeitgeist of Corinth perfectly. And it seems that some of these teachers, some of these sort of uh, philosophers, some of these sort of practitioners of fancy rhetoric had, had made their way into the Christian church there at Corinth, or at least they were heavily influencing leaders in the church. And this creates a lot of tension between the congregation and the Apostle Paul. So a while back when we were studying 1 Corinthians, we saw that chapters 1 to 4 really was, was Paul pushing back against these impulses in the church the impulse to sort of love high-minded, fancy-sounding arguments, uh, a delight in sort of worldly displays of power. 
Uh, he rebuked the church's inclination to rally behind a sort of favorite leader. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 1 to 4, Paul insists that the message of the cross is actually weakness. It's one that makes no sense in light of the world's values and system. He, he says there in 1 Corinthians 1 to 4 that his preaching didn't come in plausible words of wisdom, right, like the, like the sophists, like the, the teachers that the Corinthians loved so much, but he said the, the, the message of the cross came in a demonstration of the power of God's spirit. And so as we come to 2 Corinthians 10, it seems that Paul, yet again, has these teachers in his sight, these opponents. If you've been paying close attention, you may notice there seems to be an abrupt shift of tone between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. Right, chapter 8 and 9, Paul seems to be happy. Right? He's, he's encouraged about the generosity of the church. He ends chapter 9 with words of praise to God. And when it comes to chapter 10... There's a shift both in subject matter, but also in Paul's tone and his intensity. Some people speculate that Paul was writing this letter over a period of time. And while he was composing this letter, sometime between chapter 9 and chapter 10, perhaps he got news of a development at the church in Corinth. That he had heard that sort of these teachers were, were gaining ground again. So we can't be sure of that, but that's possible. But if you look there in verses 10 to 12 of chapter 10... We see how Paul describes the sort of attacks against him that these teachers were, were levying. And again, we don't have the screen, so I think you'll be particularly helped if you have a Bible open in front of you, either the Pew Bible or your personal Bible or a Bible on your phone, but it'll help you to follow along if you can read along with me. There in chapter 10, verses 10 to 12, Paul writes this. He says, For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So Paul gives us some insight into the criticisms being levied against him. If you remember, Paul made a painful visit uh, to the church there in Corinth. He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And it seems that when Paul visited the church there to try to address the sort of uh, the way that these false teachers were beginning to ga gain sway there, it seems that they publicly opposed him. And they even publicly humiliated him. And Paul, instead of staying, uh, instead of fighting, instead of risking sort of burning down the whole church by creating conflict, he decided it was better to, to go. He left in order to preserve his relationship with the church there. He left and he wrote them a letter. And in that letter, he rebuked them in the strongest terms and called them to repentance. Right, so Paul, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, calls it this painful visit. He went and instead of fighting, he left and, and he wrote a letter telling them basically what he wanted to say to them uh, but couldn't. As we saw back in chapter 7, most of the church responded well to Paul's letter. They, they repented in light of it. But for Paul's opponents, this was an opportunity. This was red meat. Aha, they said. Look at Paul. He writes these big, scary letters when he's, when he's five days' journey away. Right? You all get these letters and you start scurrying around, falling into line. But remember when he was here in person? Remember how weak he was? How unimpressive his speech was? 
How unable he was to to muster an argument against us? Where's Paul's eloquence? Where's his charisma, his charm? Uh, He can't even command a room. Sure, he acts like he's a big man from a distance, but in person, he's nothing. That's what Paul's opponents are saying about him. And really, the rest of this, this letter, 2 Corinthians, is devoted to Paul pushing back against these false teachers. He's going to establish his authority and his credentials to to command the church. Look at how he speaks to them there in verses 7 to 9. He says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. There in verse 7, Paul offers them a a rebuke of sorts. He says, look at what's right before your eyes. Uh, The Greek word that he uses there could be an imperative, the way the ESV translates it there, right? To uh, look at what's in front of you, or it could be an indicative, meaning Something like you're only looking at what's right in front of your eyes, right? We might say you're, you're, you're looking at appearances. You're looking at the surface. I, I think in context, that's the more likely sense of Paul's words. But because he then invites them to, to do just the opposite, to actually take a deeper look, to look below the surface. At the end of verse 7, he, he tells them to consider in a fresh way his relationship to Christ. He says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ's, probably they're meaning that he's sent by Christ, let him remind himself that at the very least, so are we. The idea here seems to be that the teachers, these these false leaders in the church, they were claiming to be sent by Jesus. They were trying to dislodge Paul from the affections of the church. They were trying to establish themselves as the sort of rightful authority in this congregation. And so Paul, without sort of disputing that claim, says at the very least, if you're sent by Christ, Certainly, I'm sent by Christ. Again, remember how he identifies himself to the church back at the beginning of this letter. He calls himself Paul, an apostle, that means sent one, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Here he reminds the church he had been personally commissioned by the risen Christ, sent to Corinth as his ambassador, as his representative. And so he wants to push back on these would-be leaders reminding them that they they certainly don't have a greater claim to authority than he does. In verse 8, he asserts that he defends defends his boasting about his authority. Uh, You might remember boasting is an important word in this letter. It, it, It kind of connects with the idea of commending yourself, and Paul talks about this a lot. Right, he's used this word for boasting 10 times already in 2 Corinthians. And here in chapter 10... Uh, you see that it's used both positively and and negatively. There in verse 8, he talks about boasting about his authority. That's a good thing. In verse 12, he talks about the way that his opponents commend themselves. That's a bad thing. In verse 13, he says he won't boast beyond certain limits. Throughout the letter, Paul's been uneasy about this idea of having to boast, having to commend himself, having to defend himself to the Corinthians. He'd rather not He'd rather not have to sort of slap down his resume and lay out his credentials. But these false teachers have put him in a position where he has to. I think we see that's reflected in in verses 1 to 2 of our passage. Paul says there, I, Paul, 
myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You see, Paul entreats the church personally. He says, I, Paul, myself. Right, he's not, yeah, a lot of times in, in, the, in this letter, he, he uses we, right? He's talking about his sort of apostolic team. But here it, it shifts. Paul's like, no, this is me. I, am, I, Paul, myself, am communicating this to you. Right, these aren't hypothetical arguments. He's, he's not trying to have a lofty discussion about a principle. Right, he's, he's saying that there's, there's a matter of great spiritual significance going on here. And so he's not going to ignore it, but he inserts himself into it. He says, I, Paul, myself, right? I'm willing to make myself the issue here for your sake. There in verse 1, it seems like he's throwing his opponent's words back at them. He says that, I, Paul, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when I'm away, right? It's as if he's saying, oh, is that, is that how you see me? I'm weak when I'm in person, but I, I talk big talk when I'm at a distance, there in verse 2, he basically says, don't make me show you how wrong you are. Right? It almost feels like when my dad would, you know, be, we'd be on a road trip and my dad would say, don't make me pull this car over, right? Paul's saying, don't make me come there and show you just how strong I am. Don't make me show you that, in fact, I'm not weak. Please, when I come to you, remember Paul's planning to come again to Corinth, don't make me come and be confrontational. Right? Don't make me show you just how unafraid I am. But he says of his opponents there in verse 11, let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, the things I write from my, my desk far away, we do when present. Paul's saying, I'm not afraid to, to walk the talk when I get there if I need to. But this isn't the way Paul wants to interact with the church. He doesn't want to have to relate to them along the terms that would make sense to these imposters. He doesn't want to have to sort of match rhetorical force for rhetorical force. So you see there in verse 1, there, this beautiful statement, he says that he appeals to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But this is a, a, a key concept. We've seen it over and over again in 2 Corinthians. For Paul, what, what marks out true Christian ministry, true Christian authority, true uh, Christian leadership, it's not impressive appearance. It's not shows of rhetorical brilliance. It's not charisma. It's not power. It's not wealth. Instead, the one true marker of genuine Christian ministry, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, is this, conformity to the character of Christ walking according to the pattern of life that the Lord Jesus set down for us, right? And this is where Paul wants to, to, to sort of uh, plant his flag. This, Paul says, is where I part company from them. In verse 12, they, it says they compare themselves to one another. They measure themselves against one another to see who's doing the best. And Paul says, that's great, but you've got the wrong standard. It's not hard to find someone sort of out there who's, who's less than you someone who will allow you to justify your preferences. But Paul says, no, Christian leadership, Christian ministry, Christian authority, in whatever form and in whatever arena, is measured not by other people, but it's measured according to the standard of Christ himself. 
And so Paul appeals to them, not with a show of force, not by slamming his apostolic credentials down on the desk and saying, look at that. But he says he appeals with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Even in this conflict with the Corinthian opponents, we see something of the pattern of Christ's life in Paul. Remember during the last hours of the Lord Jesus' earthly life, as he was mocked, as he was beaten, as he was interrogated and ultimately crucified, remember that in that moment he had limitless power at his disposal. He could have waged any kind of war against his enemies. But instead he was quiet, like a, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was meek, he was gentle even. And so Paul's unwillingness to go to war with the Corinthians the last time he was there, that painful visit where he decided to leave rather than fight, even the tone and the tenor of this letter, all of it is an expression of Christ-likeness. Paul wants to relate to them with kindness and gentleness. But he does, he's been forced now to make sure that the church doesn't confuse his kindness with weakness. Now, before we move on, we shouldn't miss the, the larger picture here. There in verse 8, Paul reminds us of his sort of larger concern with all of this. He says there in verse 8, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Why is it that Paul is concerned to defend his ministry? Why is he boasting in his authority? Paul's made it clear in both of the letters that we have to this church that the only judgment he cares about ultimately is the judgment of Christ. So why does Paul bother sort of defending himself to the Corinthians? Oh, why is he going to spend the last chapters of his letter defending himself? Well, I think the answer is wrapped up in how Paul understood the purpose for which he had been given this apostolic authority. There in verse 8, he tells us, that it was for the purpose of building up the church, not tearing it down. He's not ashamed to press on them the reality of his authority, even if they resented it a little bit, because he understood that it was for the good of the church. He understood that their spiritual welfare was ultimately at stake. He knew that if they rejected him and the message of the true gospel to, to chase after these charlatans and false teachers... He knew that the results would be spiritual devastation. Right? His defense here, his boasting, it's not self-centered. It's not defensive. Instead, he's concerned about the good of the church. Again, we see the Christ-likeness of Paul's priorities. Jesus loves his church. Jesus died for his church. And so again, his ministers and his people reflect that love by making the, the peace and the unity and the faith and the spiritual prosperity of the church a top priority. I was reminded of this last year. I was with a, a group of pastors and we were having a conversation. One of the pastors in our midst had recently been very harshly criticized uh, in, a, in a new book that had just come out by, by a prominent pastor who up until that point had, had been a friend. And this criticism seemed almost bizarrely unfair. I'm biased, this pastor is my friend, but even, even being objective, it just seemed like it was full of mischaracterizations, uncharitable sort of judgments of, of this uh, guy's ministry. And so someone, as we were talking about it in this group, asked him, well, like, what are you going to do about it? 
Are you going to like respond on Twitter or maybe devote a podcast episode to it or something? They said, well, I'm not going to do anything. And the guy who asked the question was shocked. He said, well, what do you mean? You've been, you've been slandered. This guy said all sorts of things about you that aren't true. Are you just going to let them sit out there? And this pastor who had been criticized, he simply said sort of off the cuff, he said, who cares if I'm slandered? Why does that matter? As long as Jesus isn't being slandered. He said, I think this brother who wrote this book is actually well motivated. I'm glad that he cares about the things that he cares about. I think he just misunderstands where I stand on it. And I think he misunderstands what I've taught. And he said, look, I don't think anyone in my church is going to be sort of led astray by this. I don't think it's going to undermine anyone's confidence in the elders of our church or make someone unwilling to hear God's word from me. So he said, it's fine. Who cares? Right, I, I, was, I was struck by just how sort of off the cuff he was able to articulate the hierarchy of his concerns. Right, the glory of Jesus, the welfare of the church, and then his, his own reputation really not at all. I sense that Paul has the same priorities here, and, and so should we as a church. Think about how our relationships, think about how our congregation, how, how our families, think about how, how different things would be if we, if we cared more about the things that Jesus cares about and less about our own personal reputation. That's how Paul builds. He defends himself here only because that's what's necessary for the health of the church. Let's move on now and look at how Paul boasts. So again, back in verse 8, Paul said that he's boasting in his authority. He's going to defend himself and commend his authority for the good of the church. And so in verses 12 to 18, Paul shows us four things about the way that he boasts. And I think we can, again, listening in on our side of the telephone conversation, I think we can see also what the, what the false leaders in Corinth were doing themselves. Paul shows us how he commends himself and how it's different from the conduct of his opponents. First there in verse 12. He says, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Right, we've mentioned this already. Paul's clearly poking at his opponents here. Right, if you were a sophist teacher, you were engaged in a cutthroat business. You had to tear down your competition. Right, you had to prove your brilliance in order to win out in the marketplace, right? You had to, to show how great you were compared to those other people in order to win pupils, in order to win power and praise and cash. And so your job was to tear down everyone else and then sort of climb over the pile of bodies to the top. That was their world. That's what they imported into the church. It was the ministry of the market. It was ministry as popularity contest. It was, it was ministry as political campaign. And so Paul's summary here is blunt. He says they're without understanding. They don't get it. They're playing the wrong game. Right? We're, we're reminded we mustn't import worldly standards into the church and into our evaluations. We'll get, what matters, again, is conformity to Christ and his ways. Uh, the second thing Paul says in this section is that he doesn't overstep his boundaries. There in verse 13 down to the middle of verse 15, it says, But we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. 
seems Paul's reminding the church that he was the one sent by God to them with the message of salvation. He planted this church. And so when he asserts his authority, when he tells them what to do, he says, it's not like I'm overextending. Right? It's not as if I didn't reach you with the gospel. He, he says, therefore, his boasting is within the limits that God had set for his ministry. Right? Paul's not running around to some church that Peter planted or that John planted and trying to sort of take control there. Right? The big picture is that Paul is not power hungry. He's not grasping. Right? Unlike these false teachers, he's not trying to take over other people's work. He's not trying to take control of things that other people labored to see come to fruition. The third thing Paul says there is that he wants to extend the mission. Uh, halfway through verse 15 uh, and verse 16, he says, But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another areas of in, areas, another's area of influence. See, Paul's sights aren't set on the Corinthians alone. Right? These these professional orators had infiltrated the church and they went around to sort of devouring and consuming other people's works. They were like parasites. They contributed nothing. They just, they just sort of leached on to what was already there. But Paul tells the Corinthians that his heart, when he comes to stay with them, is that, is that they'll help him extend the gospel beyond their limits. He knows that their partnership could be strategic in reaching even further with the gospel message. And again, we see Paul's priorities. He takes a little jab there in verse 16. Right? He says, we're, we're hoping to do this. And we're hoping to do it without boasting in the work that other people have done, like these guys do. Right? As if they've planted the church. Right? Paul wants to see the work continue to spread. He doesn't just want to consume other people's work. Now, the fourth thing that Paul says here is that his boast is in the Lord. So he says in verses 17 to 18, Let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. There in verse 17, Paul alludes to a passage from Jeremiah 9 in the Old Testament. And it, it may well be that Paul has the entire context of that quote in mind. Let me, let me read to you from Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. It says there, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You can see how well that applies to the situation in Corinth. You can see why that would have been in Paul's mind. These teachers were the epitome of worldly priorities. They lived for worldly glory. And so they boasted in all of the things that the Lord says not to boast in there in Jeremiah. They boast in their might, in their wisdom, their wealth, their cleverness, their rhetorical skill. And so Paul tells the church, look, let them have it. The real treasure, the thing that's actually worth boasting about, it's the Lord. It's knowing him. It's knowing his ways. It's loving him and being loved by him. Right? The person who boasts in uh, that way, he knows that the Lord delights in what he says there in Jeremiah 9, steadfast love 
and justice and righteousness. And when we know that, when we boast in knowing that, Lord, then we can live our lives in such a way as to receive his commendation. Brothers and sisters, living in Northern Virginia, there is a relentless pressure to be extraordinary, to have something that you can boast about, whether it's success, possessions, achievement, power, proximity to power, influence, academic degrees, the accomplishments of your children, right? There is, there's a never ending buffet of things for you to live for and boast in. But it doesn't matter if you commend yourself. It doesn't matter if your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends are impressed by all of the ways that you can boast in those things. Paul reminds us here, the only thing that matters in the end is whether the Lord commends you, whether your boast is in him, whether you know him and are known by him. That's the only thing worth boasting in. And so Paul's committed to boasting only about that. We've seen how Paul builds. We've seen how he boasts. Uh, Let's look now at our third and final point, which is how Paul battles. If you see there in verses three to six, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So at the outset of our passage, Paul entreats the church by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. But to be clear, he understands that he's in the middle of a battle, that there is a war going on for the church at Corinth. And he wants the church to know that he is fighting for them with powerful weapons. He says there in verse 4 that these weapons are not of the flesh. He says in verse 3 they don't wage war according to the flesh. Uh, There in verse 3, even though they they walk in the flesh. Paul's saying that even though his ministry is carried out and conducted here in this world, in this realm of being, he says, my my battle strategies, my weapons, they don't belong to the priorities and the assumptions and the values of this world. Paul says, you can leave those weapons, the, the rhetorical tricks, the twisted logic, you can leave those things to the false teachers. Paul says, I have I have spiritual weapons, right? Not of the flesh. And these weapons have divine power, he says, to destroy strongholds. I think that, that phrase, or that, that verse, gets wrenched out of context a lot and, and applied in sort of strange ways. Uh, in order to apply what Paul says here, these principles to our lives, I think we have to understand what Paul's talking about with his original audience. Right? He says that, that he has weapons with divine power Uh, to destroy strongholds there in verse 4. A stronghold is is a fortress, right? It's a a place of refuge where you can survive an enemy's attack. So there was a prominent sort of stronghold in Corinth. The Corinthians would immediately have known, right? If the enemy comes, there's safety. You can hide, you can seek refuge in the stronghold. It's a a fortress. And so Paul here pictures the, the war that he's fighting as a kind of siege warfare. He has an enemy, these false teachers who have infiltrated the church and are turning people against him. 
and he's got this enemy surrounded. And he's got a weapon that can tear down the walls of their fortress and sort of flush them out into the open. So what is the stronghold of, of Paul's opponents? Where are they seeking shelter? What is it that's giving them cover and protection? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 5, it's, it's arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Paul says, that's what I'm tearing down. Right? As those walls of ungodly arguments come tumbling down, Paul says, I'm taking all of those anti-God thoughts captive. Right? All of those anti-God ways of thinking about the world, Paul says, I'm taking them prisoner for the sake of Christ. So when Paul talks about strongholds, right, or, the, or the fortresses that are serving as his opponent's command center, he's talking about their arguments, their ways of thinking, the lofty opinions that they've raised up over and against the knowledge of God. And so I think if we understand it like that, we can see how we have strongholds in our own lives and in our own world. Right, if you look at the big picture, God created human beings to live happily and joyfully in the world that he made under his rule. But we've rebelled against him. We've initiated conflict, battle, warfare. What we want to do, more than anything else, is to be free. Free from God's authority. Free to make our own choices. Free to think our own thoughts and to live our life the way we want to without having to worry about God. And so now, we live our lives uh, trying to reject his authority. But the problem is the world around us is constantly reminding us of God's presence. And our consciences won't stop telling us that we're going to have to give an account to the one who made us. And so as individuals and as societies, we create strongholds, ways of thinking, ways of understanding the world and understanding ourselves that allow us to feel like we've kept God out, that we've kept his claims over our lives at bay. We create strongholds that give plausibility to the way we want to live so that we can defend and justify the things we want to do. Right, perhaps with a moment's thought, you can identify what some of these things are in our lives and in our society. Right, in our world, we've seen the rise of what some have called expressive individualism. Right, this idea that the highest calling a human being can have is to figure out who I am and what I want to be. And then to sort of publicly perform that identity for everyone to approve and affirm. Right? We see this expressive individualism in a million ways that our society thinks now about identity and gender. Right? These are things that I have control over, things that I determine, things that are really dependent on my feelings from day to day. Right? This is a way that allows me to take shelter from God, to create what feels like a safe space for me to live out my rebellion against him. We've also been living in an age of, of ascendancy for materialistic atheism. Right? The idea that there is nothing beyond matter. There is no God. There is no creator. There is no soul. There is no meaning. You are just chemical processes firing away in a, in a flesh suit. Right? You're just living out your evolutionary instincts and deluding yourself into thinking there's a bigger picture. Right? You see, if if I can convince myself that that's true, well, now I have shelter. God can't speak to me. He can't condemn me. He can't call me to do anything. I'm free to live my life the way I want to live it. 
I think we see it in the way pop culture is beginning to flirt with the old ideas that life is fundamentally absurd, that the only thing we can do in order to remain sane is to embrace the meaningless and randomness of life. Right? But it's not just out there that we create these strongholds. We create them in our personal lives as well. Right? Anything that allows me to do what I want and to resist God's claim on my life. Right? Work, parenting, money, sex, alcohol, entertainment. All of those things can be good things, but, but such is the nature of our sin that we take those good gifts from God and we turn them into bricks that we use to try to create a fortress in which we can pretend that we're hiding from God. Right? A, a fortress from which to launch a, a counteroffensive against him. A place where we can exalt ourselves over and against his ways. Right? These strongholds can look a number of different ways. They can be out there in society or they can be in the privacy of my heart. They can be a firmly held and clearly expressed conviction, or it can be something that's simply in the air that I breathe that I don't even realize I believe. Strongholds can look politically conservative and politically liberal. They can be inside the church or outside the church. And so in Corinth, Paul's opponents had built up these strongholds, these Thoughts and arguments had, had taken hold in the church. They had been given uh, room and space to grow up. These ways of speaking were becoming normal for the church, and that was allowing these false teachers to wage war against God by waging war against the gospel, by waging war against Paul. We certainly have these things in our world and even in our own hearts. But there is good news. Paul says that God has has given his people weapons for this war. Weapons, he says, that have divine power to tear down these strongholds, to destroy arguments, and to bring down lofty opinions, to even take every thought that's out there, every anti-God thought out there captive. Okay, so what is that weapon? Paul doesn't actually tell us here explicitly, but he has talked about it before. Remember earlier I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1-4, to Paul contrasted his ministry with that of the sophists. Well, we read there in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verses 1-5. to Paul says, so this is 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. to And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, right? Key words. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, it, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest in, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right, Paul says, I didn't, I didn't come with their weapons. I didn't come with the lofty speech. I didn't come with their version of wisdom. In fact, I came to you in weakness and fear and trembling, right? Not with plausible words, not with words of wisdom. Oh, but I did come with the Spirit. I did come in a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your, your faith is not going to rest ultimately on the, the wisdom and the character and the rhetoric of these false teachers, but your faith is going to be resting solidly on the rock of God's power as shown to you in the Holy Spirit. 
Right? This is the heart of the contrast between Paul and his opponents. They fashioned anti-God strongholds out of plausible words of wisdom, out of the appearance of personal strength and confidence. Paul says, I came with no such wisdom, nothing personally impressive about me, but I came with spiritual dynamite because I have the message of the cross. Paul says, I came proclaiming Christ crucified. I came proclaiming the message of God's love for us, his enemies. Paul proclaimed Jesus crucified, a gift of love from God, sent to us to take on himself the consequences of our sin. He said he proclaimed Christ in the power of God's spirit. And brothers and sisters, that's the weapon we've been given. The message of the cross proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. That's how Paul fights. That's how he battles. And it's how Christians wage war today. We do not fight primarily by seizing the reins of power in the nation, certainly not by violence or military might. No, we fight by proclaiming the gospel, by by declaring a message that will seem absurd to people who are hiding in their strongholds. We proclaim the love of God in sending his son. We proclaim the suffering of Christ on our behalf, in our place, as our substitute. We proclaim his resurrection from the dead in power and victory over sin and death. We, we proclaim his future return and we call people out of their strongholds. We, we, we call them to leave behind their rebellion and to receive life and forgiveness from God before it's too late. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see that this is good news. Don't miss the larger point. Paul wants to destroy strongholds and ways of thinking that set themselves up against God. And that might sound negative and hostile and combative, but in reality, it is a tremendous act of love. It is a great ministry of mercy and compassion. Because Paul doesn't just want to destroy the, the strongholds in your life and in our church and in this world because they dare to oppose him, though he's right to be angry at anyone who would oppose him. But no, in his great kindness, in his great love, God wants to take those thoughts captive to Christ so that we can be saved, so that we can know eternal life and eternal joy in Christ. Our sin warps our way of thinking and our feeling and our loving so that these strongholds that we create They feel to us like they're life and safety and pleasure. They feel like we've built a palace that we can live happily in. But only too late do we discover that they are tombs for us to die in. And friends, the the proof is all around. You don't even need me to convince you of this. right? The more we retreat into anti-God strongholds, hedonism and unbelief, the more our lives and our churches and our society are marked by anxiety, depression, striving, fear, animosity, envy, despair. Right? The nature of the problem is that we think this stronghold is a palace, and so we resist with all our might any attempt to dislodge us from, us, from it. But God in his love knows these things are killing us, and so he wages war against them. He's committed to destroying them in the lives of his people so that we can live as we were meant to live. Friends, there's a spiritual war going on. And the enemy of God, the enemy of his people, he is more than happy for you to take refuge in anything. 
he is quite content for you to have a Republican stronghold or a Democrat stronghold. You can have a gay stronghold or a straight one, a moral one or a hedonistic one. You can have an intellectually sophisticated stronghold or an uninformed, ignorant one. He doesn't care as long as you're seeking refuge from God and not refuge in God. But God in his great love and kindness calls rebels to come out. He tears down the walls and, and, and calls us to come to him to find grace and mercy and new spiritual life. He calls us out of our strongholds. He takes our thoughts captive. He tears down the walls so that we who were his enemies might find ourselves being welcomed to his table as friends. And that brings us to our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because the Supper is one of the great weapons God has given us as the church in this battle against the strongholds in our lives and in our world. It's here at the table that we see God's answer to our rebellion in the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. He has torn down strongholds through the message that's on display here at the table. Right? We tear them down by believing this message, by rejoicing in this message, by taking every thought captive and bringing it into line with the message of the cross of Christ. And so as we come to the table each week, we are reminded that divine power is not found in the wisdom and priorities and imaginations of the world, not even in our own thoughts and minds, but divine power is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so we come to celebrate together. Now, a couple of things before we celebrate. First of all, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or if you're not a baptized member of a church that preaches the gospel, then we would encourage you, instead of coming forward now, uh, you can use this time well by contemplating the grace and the salvation that are held out to you in the death of Christ. If you're a member of this church, but if there's some sort of ongoing, unrepentant pattern of sin in your life, so not that you're struggling with sin, we're all struggling with sin, but if there's some ongoing, unrepentant pattern, or if there's some sort of deep-seated, hidden hostility or hatred towards another member of the church. Basically, if the only reason you're still a member here is because we don't know what's going on in your life, we just remind you the Lord knows you. And then rather than coming forward as a hypocrite, uh, come and talk to one of the elders right away. Uh, let us help you turn from whatever it is that's going on in your life. And if you're not a member of this church, but if you are a baptized member of another church and that church delights in the same gospel that you've heard here this morning and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, then we invite you to come and participate with us as a, a sign of the great unity we have with every other church that loves the Lord Jesus and his gospel. So in accordance with the Apostle Paul's instructions, we're going to take some time to examine ourselves before we come to the table. We'll do that together through a, a corporate prayer of confession, but before that, we're going to take a moment for a silent reflection and confession, and then I'll lead us in prayer. So let's pray together.